Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Jana, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicole Cierska. She's a scientist and positive psychology coach who helps experts and teams in STEM do better work. Today's conversation covers Nicole's story and how she became interested in coaching through her experience of something called bore out. We clarify what bore out means, how it's related to boredom, and how you can use feelings of boredom to your advantage instead of avoiding it with distractions or sinking into inertia. We discuss how you can use nearly any type of feedback to your advantage and practical tips for communicating for impact and influence even when that means holding back instead of holding forth. We cover a few helpful resources that you can find in the show notes, including Nicole's tips for reducing stress and burnout. And if you like what you hear today, check out Nicole's newest project, The Better Work Podcast, which explores how we can re-engineer our workplaces and ways of working so that people feel good and do well. And now I bring you Nicole Tierska. Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Welcome to Access Ideas. Thank you for inviting me, Jana. It's wonderful to have you here. And where are you joining us from today? I'm in stormy, rainy Hamburg today in Germany. Uh, Well, I am in freezing cold Toronto with lots of blowing snow. So we're going to bring our own light and warmth to this conversation with our geeking out over good ideas about health and motivation in the workplace and how to work better. Tell me all about your interest in coaching and a little bit about your background and how you came into coaching. Yeah, so I'm a scientist. I'm a food chemist by training and I have a PhD in chemistry. And for the first part of my career, I worked in consumer goods innovation thinking that this is what I would be doing for the rest of my life because it is really exciting to come up with new ideas, to think of what people might like or might need, and then to create something in the lab that people can use or consume. And eventually you see it on a shelf or you have a patent for it, and that is just super exciting. So I did this in the industry, so consumer goods industry, And there are many great things in the industry for a scientist or someone with a scientific or STEM background because, well, at least that's how it felt to me when I first started. There's all the money in the world compared to at Mm -hmm. university where you were, I don't know, washing your own beakers all the time and you would (laughs) would have to line up and, okay, how how many milliliters of this... Uh, chemical would you need and these kind of things whereas in the industry they are very cost conscious don't get me wrong but they're not stingy when it's about an important project and so that is really exciting that you get funding for doing all sorts of analysis for running experiments for testing your product or giving it to consumers so many opportunities At the same time, corporate work life comes with its own challenges. And one of the challenges that I faced was that the team that I was in was affected by redundancy after a acquisition. So the company I worked for acquired a part that would be a good addition. 
or required another company that would be a good addition to the business. And all of a sudden they had two teams doing the same thing, which mm. doesn't make any sense from a business point of view. And they decided right. to disband then the team that I was in. And I wasn't so much afraid of losing my job because I knew I had a really good reputation. I had built a good rapport also with people. They came knocking on my door. Hey, do you want to join my team? What do you want to do next? All these sort of things. So it wasn't really that. But between, between them stopping the projects until making the decision and finally truly disbanding the team and me getting into a new position, that was six months. Six months wow. from really doing a lot of over hours before to then doing nothing. You had loved your work. Oh, yes. I mean, so this is not like you were looking for a bit of quiet time. No, I thrived off that. We were so busy. We were creating new things. We were collaborating with marketing, with manufacturing, with third-party suppliers. It, it, it was just so much fun. And because also everything had to be set up from scratch, you know, because it was a completely mm -hmm. new product category for the company. And so, yeah, we just did everything. And we had, it, it was a green field. It was a playground, if you will. Yeah. And so going from that to having nothing to do other than to clean out the labs is, I don't know. At the beginning, you know, it was okay-ish, you know, you could mm -hmm. take a break. Also, then still most of my old colleagues were there and, you know, we could play bubble shooter during the day. But let that go on for two, three, four weeks. You start to feel, okay, I, I don't know what are they doing here? Why is there no decision? When do I get to do some real work again? And then I found a new position. However, that new position was also still dependent on that new business unit, you know, that they acquired to right. give us projects. And because of all the things that were going on, people not getting along, political games, I have no idea what the real reason was, but the effect that I felt was that I had, again, hardly anything to do. I was desperately grasping for, for just the smallest work and knocking on my boss's door regularly, almost sitting on his lap crying to get me something to do. <laughs> oh, no. And, you know, because that over time, you start to feel ridiculous because you, or at least I, started to feel ridiculous. So... Uh, okay, do I need to keep up appearances? How how open can I even be about not having anything to do? Definitely not to my colleagues because they were still crazy busy, you know, in that new mm -hmm. team because they were working on other projects. But all my attempts of, you know, becoming part of that maybe or getting some other work to do, it was all fruitless. And so in total, that whole thing or that whole period of working at only 10% of my capacity stretched on for 12 to 18 months and oh, yeah that's a long time and by the end of it everything was horrible everything in my I mean everything in my life was good but I felt horrible so I was doing nothing at work all day and my energy was completely drained at the end of the day I I, I hated anything that resembled a routine you know oh how can there be weekend again you know oh it's nothing going on in the weekend <laughs> And I felt so bad and unworthy that I was serious. I was thinking, is there any place where I can give my salary back? I really haven't earned that in any way. <laughs> and it's, you know, it sounds ridiculous maybe, but 
it, it was a, it was a genuine and honest thought. And yeah, so that anyways, that was, you know, the, how they say sometimes it needs a breakdown before the breakthrough. So that is when, when I sought the help of a coach and within four sessions, not everything was pitchy again, but I started to get my energy back, try new things, talk to new people, pursue new strategies that eventually led me into a completely new position within the company. But at the same time, I was thinking, because we only talked four times and I was thinking, how did he do that to me? I want to be able to do that too for people. Magic. Yeah, I know. It was so amazing. And and I wanted to have that skill. And that's when mm. I signed up for coaching training and I was hooked, basically. And today you're really well known for your ability to identify the link between joy and excellence. So the importance of engagement and specifically going back to your story, your own experience, you are experiencing something that's called bore out. And I believe this is a term that you use pretty frequently. And it's not as uncommon as we might think. I mean, it sounds almost like a joke because we think, well, how can you be bored? But the idea is that you're either under you're underutilized or you're not challenged enough. And this brings about its own sort of stress. And can you talk a little bit about what bore out is and, and specifically within STEM, what it might look like? Yeah. So in preparation for our conversation, because I only ever used the term as part of my own experience, which I just described, but I looked it up uh, and there was a research paper that I found and they were looking also to, you know, how can we actually assess the level of bore out? The level of bore <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, in a person. Anyways, there are a few definitions out, but one team of researchers defined it as bored being composed of three components. So one is boredom, like everybody knows the feeling of boredom, but then also a lack of challenges and a lack of professional interest. And so just boredom in and of itself, I don't think is too much of a bad thing. And we can talk about how that might actually be useful on occasion, but Lack of challenges and lack of professional interest. This is just over course of time. You know, there's a very, very basic human or very basic psychological need that everyone has. And that is the need for competence or mastery, yeah. you know, to feel like mm -hmm. I can have an effect on the situation and I can feel myself getting better and having no challenges at all really undermines that need and we're just totally missing out and over time as we then also become less and less interested because there's no subject we can turn our interests to right. uh, it can really lead to a crisis of meaning and growth because i wholeheartedly believe that people are wired for growth even the people who hate learning in school or hate learning new things that they have to for work. We all have some area of interest where we want to stretch ourselves. And it doesn't mm -hmm. have to feel scary or overwhelming or anything like that, but just a way of finding new things that we can be interested in, that we find surprising. Yeah. And if I understand from your story, 
you had calibrated your life to be in a position where you were constantly being challenged. You actually pursued that state. That was your happy place. And so to suddenly have that taken away from you and recognize that I'm bored, I'm not getting challenged, I'm not going to get new and interesting work for various operational and political reasons resulting from this acquisition, that wasn't a challenge that you had navigated before. And so you had this sense that you almost had to pretend that you were challenged just enough that it would justify you staying there. Does that sound like your experience? Um, sort of. I mean, it was a safe job. I liked working in the company generally. Right. I had great colleagues, so there, it, it was in, a, in my favorite city. So there were plenty of good reasons. So the pain of being under-challenged would have to become really severe. And then, you know, it's like 12 to 18 months in, that is when it became so severe that I remember I sat crying with my, you know, the, with the director of the function. I mm-hmm. said, man, you, it's like, I, I don't know what to do. I tried this and this and this and this and nothing's giving in and I don't know what else to do. And I, And that's when I also went to HR and said, look, you have to give me something real to do or I have to look for a new job. And that's when things started to happen, you know. So I was I was really limited in that approach at first because I always thought I needed to play that via my boss and my boss boss. And that's what I stuck to. And mm-hmm. looking back, that is one of the mistakes that I had made. Learning from that today, I would have done it well, I guess you never learn it if you don't go through it, you know, so it's, it's, it's all fine and well. But if, if I were to encounter a similar situation again, I would use it as an opportunity to challenge myself in a different way, which is how quickly can I get myself into a new position that I want to get in? And mm. how can I navigate the circumstances in a way that yeah, makes that come true. So I could learn and grow in a completely different area, but not in my field, but, you know, in the purpose of getting me to that new place. But at the time, really, I was just rolling my eyes, like, what, why are those people not making any decision? And Yeah, you were kind of waiting for them <laughs> yes. to kind of get the ball rolling or spark some activity. I'm interested now that you've had that experience, And you can look back and you've coached others who are probably going through that or they have gone through that. What are some early signs or flags that you you could say to people what to watch out for so that you don't allow it to become a personal crisis where you are (laughs) crying in the office of your director or whatever it may be? I guess people will notice when they start to be unsatisfied Mm -hmm. and just not happy and depending on your personality so i would i would feel quite smug about everything i would always you know i would have that feeling of <laughs> I, I i know everything better not that i had a chance to voice it or you know i don't know what it, it was just a way of compensating because i'm right. i'm usually not like that i'm very uh very open and i'm very aware of my limitations and mm-hmm. There didn't seem to be a sense of limitation in this case. Maybe on an unconscious level, actually, you didn't know that you weren't being challenged, but you were in that initial state of bore out where it was, everything's fine. I'm in a great company. I live in a city I love. What could be wrong? And so 
you know, I'm clearly here for a reason. The company was keeping you, so that's a good sign. But as you continued in that situation, you started to experience, it sounds like, frustration. Like the state of being challenged and living on the edge of your comfort zone and stretching into something that you've never done before. I think that became less accessible to you from the sounds of it. Yes. And I didn't have any fun things to do. And I'm very quick in the work that I do without being, you know, without cutting corners. And so even the small things that finally someone gave me, they would be done in in a blink. (laughs) And I said, man, this is just a completely wrong person position fit. And so I was just, I was just thinking to myself, they're, They've, they've structured that team wrong. There's just not enough thought about how to, how to do that right. And I was in the wrong place. And I was thinking, okay, so if this is how it is here and I don't fit here, then maybe I have to go somewhere else. But, but then also I, I was still eager to be part of that because it was still in the field or in the area where I had, where I had worked in before. We had built a new category within the company from scratch, there was so much knowledge that I had built over the past three years that by the way, even now, which is now it's so that all of that happened in 2015 or yeah, 2015, 2016, and it's now 2022. And even now people come back to me to tap into that knowledge from back then. So, you know, so, so there was something there and I thought it would be a shame if all that goes to waste and nobody requests that. But then at the same time, I mean, if, and that is really something I must say, if you want to acquire or a, a business or merge with another company, then it is so, so vital that you pay good attention as a business to integrate that part. Not just, so where? Obviously, start with the processes and with the systems, but also make sure you integrate the teams so they start to feel like they belong together and everyone has a place instead of being in some sort of weird competition with one another or um, thinking everybody has to outdo themselves now in order to earn their place and or, or just being completely... You know, oh, the people over in Hamburg or the people over in the U.S. sort of, you know, mm. how that happens when you don't have a chance to get to know each other. And oh, yes, I guess in the worst companies, they even pit you against one another. So, yeah, I've personally supported communications internally for approximately 10 different acquisitions coming into one company. And this pattern is so familiar People fear the worst when they don't have enough information and people fear for their jobs when they don't see themselves in the context of the new company. And there's a lot of operational and structural work that's required to set people up to do their best work. But this is not intuitive and it's not obvious to most people because most people haven't spent their lives going through acquisitions, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not supposed to be a constant state. And so I think what you are going through reflects what I've seen many times with communications, uh, you know, feedback and, and results where people feel a sense of futility. You know, do I have a job? Well, if I just hang in there and I keep 
you know, doing what is asked of me, eventually I'll get back to that place that I enjoyed. And the sad thing is so often acquisitions are intended to foster greater collaboration and innovation and strengthen what the company already does well. But if these operational pieces and the structural and cultural pieces are not addressed, it can absolutely form a corrosive sort of stasis or a sense of fear at the very worst. And it sounds like you went to see this coach, you were feeling much of this in your role. What did the coach tell you that started to help you identify what was happening and and understand that there was a way out of this? First of all, he was very convincing in telling me that I did nothing wrong. (laughs) You know, because that is the worst thing when you're in a bad situation and then you even beat yourself up over not doing it right, even though you've tried everything that you could access in that moment. I remember one thing that he said to me, he said, yeah, of course you're exhausted. You spent all day managing your own emotions. Then, of course, that is exhausting and you're flat when you come home. So, mm-hmm. and that ever since then, I pay so much more attention to the emotional labor that we have to do at work, both in terms of, you know, remaining professional and uh, staying calm in the form, you know, in, in the moment of crisis or when people yet again haven't done their part for the job and when Mm -hmm. decisions come in that we disagree with there's so much emotional labor in managing our own emotions and then also emotional labor in terms of managing other people's emotions because sometimes people do lash out or get worried or whatever and you have to carry the weight for them as well that's right man and sometimes i see in the in the bus, I see a small child that just throwing a tantrum. It just starts crying and just doesn't care about anything. And I was like, oh, wouldn't that be nice to just <laughs> every now and then just to let go and throw a tantrum because it's just all too much? Yeah, to have a release. Yeah. Anyway, so that was one thing. So that affirmation of myself. Uh, the second thing that we talked about was switching up my what I was doing on a behavioral level so that the emotions could follow suit. Uh, What that means is that there's a saying, what fires together, wires together. And so I love that one. I would every day for those one, one and a half years, I would have the same way to work. I would have the same way that I would enter the building. I would say to see the same visual clues. And over time, that had been connected to that dread, to that feeling of emptiness, to that feeling of boredom that I couldn't handle. And so he said, okay, we need to short circuit that. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the simply by coming into it, the environment, you're not already triggered into that emotional state. And so that is one thing that so occasionally I would walk a bit of the way or I would choose a different door to enter the building or <laughs> I would go up a different flight of stairs and say hello to the... I, would, I was just on a behavioral level, I was just starting to switch things up. And also to get back a sense of agency, you know, mm-hmm. it's like there, there is actually a tiny little thing in my life that I can control. Yeah. And so... So that helped. Plus, obviously, he helped me brainstorm. Okay, what have you tried already? Okay, what would be the next step? And at that time, 
speaking to my director OHR about it seemed outrageous and disloyal to my boss. Hmm. So I had to break that belief of I'm going over his head because yeah. in all fairness, I have talked to him many a times. So, but that was a real barrier for me to overcome, but because it's just, I find it, it's not good form and it's a bit unfair if you immediately go, you know, around your boss. You wanted to give him the opportunity to help you and, and give you guidance. But from my perspective, he was also very close to the situation. So it might have been hard for him to see things differently too. So I think going to HR or a coach gives you a little more access to objectivity. Somebody who is not familiar with the situation. And that's often where things that in retrospect seem obvious, like change up your routine, it wouldn't be as obvious to your boss. Yeah. Also, if you don't have that type of education. You know, so this yes, is absolutely. some of these weird things that coaches come up, <laughs> you know, I love, you know, sometimes I prescribe that to my clients too. It makes sense and, and there's a point to it. But if you've never heard of it, because you've never even started to think about how people and how our own mind works in this way, then, you know, how could you possibly know? Right. There's no framework yeah. to even identify. Yeah. I'm curious from your perspective, because I know specifically you work often with women who are in STEM roles. Do you think that your experience, or even just now that you're a coach, that you would flag different warning signs or different opportunities for women to see their situation maybe a little differently than men when it comes to bore out or a sense of the career progression having stalled? I have a suspicion. I don't have a representative data pool to, to make any statistically relevant uh, calls here. But from the conversations that I have had, um, so men do experience it too, but I would suggest that maybe women explain the situation differently to themselves. And again, this might be a gross overgeneralization here, but I have the impression that men tend to find more external ex externalizing yeah, causes of yeah, the problem yeah, ex yeah. external justifications or explanations for what is going on whereas women might look at themselves and see the fault in them and what they haven't done and so that might be that might be something in the way that it manifests itself and but it might also be then the precursor of how we then respond to the situation. Because if I think this is something, something on the outside is wrong, then I sort of keep my energy and I keep my willingness to engage and fix it mm -hmm. and be you know, properly upset as this is unheard of. Like, why are you not giving me <laughs> proper work? You know, that is a completely different attitude with where you're coming from a much greater place of strength. Whereas when you start to think it is your fault and because you haven't made yourself aware enough or because maybe you're not a good fit for this or that new project, then you start to doubt yourself and you retreat into the spiral of helplessness and the less and less you, you try for fear of being rejected or for fear of being maybe proven right in your assumptions. So that, but again, that's a suspicion. 
Well, I think that resonates with me, certainly. Um, A sense of not being able to navigate an experience can often be internalized as, well, this is just something that I need to figure out. And if I haven't figured it out, it's, it's my problem to figure it out. Instead of looking at the experience or situation as, this is highly unusual, this is not normative, this is dysfunctional or maladaptive from a structural or organizational point of view. And that I think might be more, and again, I, I like this is a generalization, but I think with women, there is more of a sense that you've got to prove yourself, especially in STEM, you can't complain. And if you aren't certain about something, you should, you just might not have figured it out, but you should somehow know. And maybe this comes from the fact that there's still not parity with women in STEM roles. And there's a sense that women have to adapt to the structure of organizations that are into R&D or STEM because those happen to be legacy male-dominated organizations. In order to change them, you've got to figure out how it works and adapt to those situations or cultures And then you can change it or then you can make tweaks or improve it. But there is a sense that you have to kind of meet things where they are and accept them. And I think that's okay. I think accepting a situation as it is is a first step. But the problem is then do you internalize it as this is a situation that I'm supposed to figure out on my own because I should be smart enough and capable enough because that's who I am? Or do you start to assess the situation as this is a problematic situation beyond my personal ability to fix it. And I have to figure out what is within the realm of my capabilities that I can have some autonomy here and navigate this situation so that I can go to where I need to go, whether it's in another part of the organization or I have to speak to somebody. And I'm curious to hear how you started to transition or even how you help your clients transition from thinking about the problem as this is my problem to solve and if I can't figure it out there's something wrong with me versus this is how you can identify what's outside of your control. And the first step that you mentioned is really crediting your own capability and saying you're smart, you are capable, you've done all kinds of challenging things this is not just in your head that this situation is is impossible. So how do you help people guide themselves through their thinking so that there's less emphasis on blaming yourself or feeling incompetent and more of a mindset toward understanding the problem as an external set of challenges or even dysfunction? Yeah, the first step is actually to determine whether there's a problem there or whether it's just in our heads. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Because, you know, we can also make up stories about how disadvantaged we are and how the world is against us. And I don't want to minimize anyone's experience. However, it is also, you know, no company has a personal vendetta against you too. <laughs> Something like that. So many of the problems that my clients come to me with is once we start talking, the majority of the drama is just built up assumptions 
that they have in their heads about yeah. what's going on. And those assumptions typically sound something like poor me and that bad person or that bad company. Mm, personalizing the problem. Yeah. And getting into a sort of victim-villain story. Uh, and again, there are places that are toxic, for lack of a better word, that are truly dysfunctional, where you should just pack up and leave <laughs> as quickly as you can. However, I don't think it's every company and it's every team. Definitely not. And yeah, from what I have seen. And also, just because you had a phase where you were bored or you feel a little bit under challenge, you feel you have grown into your job, also doesn't mean that you have a bore out, you know. Sometimes you just reach a natural plateau of a learning curve from the, you know, the content side of what you have to do. Mm. And you've got the routines down, you know who your stakeholders are, you know how you operate on a daily basis, uh, you have all the prerequisite knowledge that you need to come up with new ideas, all these kind of things. If that is all new to you at the beginning, then of course you feel over-challenged. And then sometimes I wonder, are we getting addicted to those dopamine hits of all of the time <laughs> learning something new and we mistake it for that being the normal state when in fact, That's the norm. you know, so yeah. whenever somebody talks to me and men do that in the same way uh, as women do that, they say, okay, I've been in this job for one and a half years now and I feel under change and I need to move on. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you haven't seen everything yet. <laughs> so that is actually a really great point where you can, I mean, definitely start thinking about where do you want to go next, but don't think it needs to happen tomorrow. But think about, okay, mm -hmm. maybe it is in 12 to 18 months. And now how can I use that time to get mm -hmm. to a next level of excellence in what I do? How can I use that time to build and train and try out the skills that I might need in my new position in this safe place where I know what's happening and where I know how to handle things. So And you're in your comfort zone. Exactly. So, yeah. It's not yeah. even the right term. I mean, yes, you feel confident and competent, but there's also, if you only start looking, there are proper ways to challenge yourself again. So, like I said, so this is the first thing. Is it really a problem? So if there's a clear case of uh, bullying at work or if there's a clear case of harassment or discrimination or whatever, then no doubt about it. Yeah, take the appropriate steps to find a better place to be. But it's not everything that or every time that the world is against you. And, no. and so let's solve the right problem, right? And I, I want to go back to what you said about boredom because I have a hunch that so much of our discomfort and anxiety about boredom relates to what you just mentioned, that dopamine hit from mastery, from acquiring a new skill that was previously difficult. And from a more practical level, we get dopamine hits from so many elements in our culture, whether it's, you know, social media, watching YouTube, uh, extreme sports. There's all kinds of ways that we escape boredom. And I think there's less opportunity now to lean into it Maybe I'm trying to popularize boredom as something that we should be more comfortable with or even lean into when we're feeling it. Because I think 
And again, this is more of a hunch, but I think it could be quite useful when we can recognize it as an opportunity for change or growth. And I really like what you said, Nicole, about not just seeing it as, you know, the the next quick jump, the next quick step. You're bored, quickly, quickly change something, but you're bored. So how can we sit down and strategize or plan a much broader growth trajectory for whatever it is that you want to go to next. So can we talk a little bit about that and the nature of boredom and how we can actually use it instead of fearing it and trying to escape it? Yeah. Also, I think boredom has a bad rep, especially Mm -hmm. in our very hyper-productive society. So last Friday, together with a colleague, we facilitated a workshop about stress and resilience. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a three-module kind of workshop and this was the first one where we were just talking with participants about how do you experience stress and what stresses you out and one of the participants said that he sometimes feels overwhelmed by the amount of things he could do in his evening to recharge and then he tries this (laughs) and he tries that because all the other people seem to be into whatever stand-up pedaling or or whatever is the latest fad, latest you know. Trend. And, and he said, you know, but in all honesty, those things don't excite me. They are not fun, but everybody's reading. So I guess I have to read. And so that is how he came into the workshop. And at the end, everybody so sort of gave their own permission slip or, you know, decided on what do I, what do I want more of in my life. And he actually said, you know, If over the course of the next week until we have the second module, if I can sit in the evening on my couch without doing anything, without feeling the pressure of having to do anything and just be bored and just be for a while, Mm -hmm. then that's going to be a good week. And so I think being bored sometimes, we could also call it being content with what is and just, Mm -hmm. you know, being in the moment and enjoying being It sounds very woo-woo, but there is something to that and it can be very uh, recreational. At the same time, when I hit a dead end with a creative project or when I'm trying to solve uh, a problem or mystery where where I'm not getting forward, then artificially creating an environment where I'm going to be bored creates the space for new ideas to emerge you know when my brain is not distracted with a certain focus then it's almost like like in your sleep you know then there's so much more stored in your unconscious and then there's time for new connections to be formed and you can make yeah you can make those new analogies or you come up with something that you have long forgotten about but which you would have never thought about if you hadn't stopped thinking so hard if that makes any sense (laughs) Absolutely. I think often we fill up our bandwidth with distractions that feel semi-productive. So for me, I know 100% my tendency is to constantly listen to podcasts and audiobooks because I get that dopamine hit from learning. And my default state is to think, well, if I'm just walking around cleaning the house or folding laundry, whatever it is, Of course, I should listen to something where I can learn. Why wouldn't I? But what I noticed is when I stopped doing that, even for 10 or 15 minutes at a time, I was coming up with new ideas or making connections. I could not have done that because 
my attention was just taken up just enough with those podcasts or audiobooks so that I wasn't generating new thought. I was just processing. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Don't get me wrong. There's nothing like listening to a great podcast while you're doing something boring. But I think we need to make time to actually listen to our own thoughts, whether it's meditation or mindfulness. And it doesn't need to be particularly um, spiritual. But I think it needs to give us insight into our own minds. And we typically resist that because it's not an intuitively enjoyable state, right? The state of boredom doesn't feel fun. It's not attractive unless you're completely exhausted, right? And then by that point, you just think, I I just want to lie on the couch. But I want to go back to what you said about allowing new connections to form when you give your mind that capacity to just wander and think and not have to process. Yeah. I think you're also not really using your brain properly if all you do is recite back information that you have heard somewhere else. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Google can do that. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. we don't need you for that. So Google can do that even better than you. So the the value comes from making those new connections, from connecting your experience to something that you just heard and uh, from coming up with new thoughts. And I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions in school because in school, they always say to you, you have learned something when you can give back the correct information that we dumped into your brain before. But that's mm-hmm. not true. So no. you learn something when it when it clicks, you know, when you understand it, when you can grasp the concept, when you can explain it differently when, in your own words, when you can marry it, when you can even come up with uh, entirely new thoughts, you know, somebody else may have thought that before as well, but if you haven't heard it from them, but you came up with something new on your own, and that is increasingly rewarding and interesting what you just said about, oh, it's like, I have to do something in parallel. And now that this one thing saved me so much time, then, you know, that I can use productively for something else. There's, uh, I don't know if you know her, Tara McMullen. She Mm. has a podcast called What Works. And she recently had an episode out called Time and Money, episode two. And she spoke about exactly that. And it really got me thinking, man, it is true. Just because all of a sudden, because of a new tool or a new system or whatever, we we got our work done in less time. Just think of a washing machine, you know. My grandma used to wash everything with her hands. She would spend the whole Saturday. Can you, like... I wouldn't dream of spending a whole Saturday just doing day, just washing oh, my clothes. Day. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's ridiculous when you think of it. And now we think, okay, so the uh, washing machine is going. So what do I do while this is going? You know, because it doesn't feel as we're productive anymore. Anyway, I, it's just. I'm going to find that episode and link to it in the show notes. That sounds fascinating. I love to hear those types of ideas connected and discussed. I think that's really important. When a technology or sometimes people call them life hacks, I don't love that word, but people know it, so I'll use it, becomes intuitive, we stop seeing it as a choice. It often just becomes the default state and the preferred default state. Like this is how to be efficient. This is how to be productive. And we don't have a lot of incentive in our culture to question that status quo. Like 
nobody's going, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but I can't imagine many people questioning the, the utility of their washing machine and saying, you know what, I should really try out that washboard from 100 years ago. It might be the way to go. It's It just seems obvious. You know, of course, you're going to use a washing machine. And not only that, you're going to get one with all the bells and whistles that has all the little features to wash every type of clothing and material. So this is a really interesting idea about how do we use time? And then how do we use that boredom experience to channel how we use time and channel how we think about our use of time? So can you talk a little bit about reframing the value of your work or the value of your use of time when you think about sometimes boredom makes us feel like we don't have as much value in our work or our skills or our talent? How can we use it to reframe how we value those those elements of our lives. Okay. So first of all, just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to do or you should do something. Yeah. And I guess... Can we repeat that actually? Because I think people need to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do or we have to do something. That sentiment of that phrase, I first heard, I think it was maybe... Albert Einstein or someone who said it about as a as a remark to as about the hydrogen bomb, you know, he said, okay, mm-hmm. just because scientists can do anything doesn't mean they should do or have to do. And I guess that is a question worthwhile posing to ourselves on occasion. Okay, I know I could do all of this, but do I have to? Do I even want to? <laughs> You know, there's this implicit yeah. imperative that just because you have more time on your hands, you should take on more work. Or that you won't have a good enough a career if you don't take every opportunity to climb through the ladder. I mean, just because there's a next level up position that's free and you could go there, does it mean you have to? Does it mean mm-hmm. it would be the better fit for you? So letting loose of that, I guess it's a different case of FOMO as well, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. Yeah, so that, that is one thing I would suggest. Uh, but then in terms of, you know, getting bored, uh, getting back to feeling bored and feeling undervalued, maybe having that bit of a crisis of meaning at work, what am I doing here? Is this even useful to anyone? So two things that... I think might be helpful here is one is that you can go interview your customers and by customer, I don't necessarily mean the end user of the product that your company makes, Mm -hmm. Uh, although that could be fun as well, but, um, (laughs) but it can be your internal customers. So who are you handing your work over to? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who are you working with and collaborating with on a daily basis? And that's, yeah, that, that strategy became so obvious to me because at the end of last year, I did a feedback collection round. So I mm-hmm. set up meetings with individual meetings with 10 different people that I collaborated with who are mm-hmm. peers in my team or it might, might be my boss or it might be partners in a, in a project. And I, I was just asking them for feedback, both for what are things that are good and that are working well and how how is what I do helpful for you? Mm-hmm. And then also some, uh, you know, do you have any advice or if, if I wanted to go even further or develop further, then what would you think could be an area to look at? On the positive side, it was so reaffirming or even 
insightful. I could have never come up with those things that they mentioned because we're typically blind to the effect that mm -hmm. we have on others because we don't usually talk about it. And so when people would say to me, you know, you're really good at building relationships, not just one, not just you with another person, but you between other people. So facilitating that relationship building. Making connections between two people that might never have met otherwise. Yeah, not just making the introduction, but literally people mm -hmm. working together, teams from different parts working together and helping them form a partnership of sorts, you know, in collaborating better together. So he mentioned that. And then another person said, you know, you're always calm and kind and polite, even when it gets hectic. You're always very structured and that is so calming, that so relieves my stress. And it's like, huh, because that is my... <laughs> normal way of being and for her it really made a difference it's okay this is interesting so that can be a trick you know just to speak to a few people that you work with and say hey what difference does it make to you you know first of all the work that i do but also me as a person how does mm -hmm. that impact you and what you have to do so that's one thing that you can do and another thing that is maybe useful to know about boredom we could also call it a knowledge emotion so if you want to think about knowledge emotions on a, in a two by two matrix or in a like coordinate system where mm -hmm. on the horizontal axis you have on one hand side being super familiar with something versus on the other hand side you have, this is completely new to me. I've never heard of this before. And then on the vertical axis, you would say, okay, on the top, there are things that are, you know, surprising. And mm -hmm. on the bottom, there are things that are unsurprising, you know, so they seem kind of obvious. And now we could place in the different quadrants, we could place different emotions. So for example, if we're on the top right, so if we have a lot of prior knowledge to this subject and we learn something new or we hear something that is surprising or novel, then this sparks interest. Whereas right. if we have very low prior knowledge of a subject and we hear something new in this area, then that might be confusing. And if we have either, you know, no prior knowledge or we do have prior knowledge, but we hear something that is whatever information we receive, it is just unsurprising or not novel, then that is also can elicit the feeling of boredom. And so the question is, how can you tap in your curiosity? How can you, by making it a point of asking questions of, mm -hmm. I don't know, assuming a childlike, annoying way of asking why, 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 <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but, but we can... By the way that we approach a situation or by the attitude that we have or by the questions we ask ourselves, we can also trigger our own interest and get out of the boredom. Well, and I want to go back to what you talked about with feedback, because I have a feeling that that is a great way to initiate curiosity. So you mentioned when you ask for feedback, one of the pieces of feedback you got was you're really calm and methodical and that helps me because that's not my natural state. 
And you might have never thought that that particular quality of yours was valuable or significant. It might have seemed completely obvious to you that that simply had a function. But I think when we get feedback, we see ourselves in a very useful way that we wouldn't otherwise have access to. Can you talk a little bit about the value of feedback and specifically getting better value from negative feedback so that you can use that to tap into curiosity and maybe move away from that frustrated boredom state? Okay. Like I said, feedback can be uh, affirming. It can be, it just can give you a sense of inspiration. You know, what the heck am I doing all of this for? Well, other people (laughs) can tell you. That's good too. (laughs) And at the same time, I mean, sometimes people say every feedback is good feedback, but I don't think so. If it's just, just people just want to unleash their criticism on you or their their own mood and you're just in the way then. I might disagree with that because when people are unleashing something or they're taking something out on you, the important or utility of that feedback, I would say, is to understand this person feels they can do this to me, first of all. Why is that something they feel they can do? And second of all, is this something that they do to everybody? Because if it's something that they do to everybody, it's easier to dismiss and say this person is just difficult. They don't have a filter. Everything comes out of their mouth, right? But sometimes... If it's a situation where the person has perceived us as someone who's not going to stand up for themselves or somebody who won't fight back or argue, that can be a useful clue because sometimes that means we have to step up or claim more space, whether by arguing or presenting our ideas in a more forthright and and Sometimes it will feel scary to some people to do that. But I would say that's where negative feedback can sometimes be a useful instigator, not in and of itself, but from what it tells you about how the person perceives you or about how that person feels it is appropriate to interact. Yeah, I agree. On a meta level, there's a ton of insight in that, but you don't have to take the content of what they say at face value. So, And fair enough, right? Because often it isn't even the content of feedback that we really grow from. It's the context, it's the reframing ability, and it's the tone and the body language and the interpersonal nature of it that can really deliver some rich insight. Yep. Yep. And so if you have a feedback conversation with someone, even if it's a corrective feedback or someone saying that wasn't good, you can still take a ton away from that if you feel like this person has your best interests at heart, you know? Mm -hmm. So then typically the, and if you have a good relationship with one another, then typically you feel open enough to be willing to listen, to not feel either to, you have to push back or you have to go and have a good cry about it. Um, (laughs) But, you know, so how can you get more about that or how can you get more out of this type of feedback? Well, ask for specifics. So mm-hmm. often people are not very good at giving feedback. So like you just said, you know, ask questions to discern a bit more. Okay, what was the context? What situation was I in? Who else was there? What exactly did I do? How did you perceive it? What impact did that have? So asking all of those specific questions, you can also ask for advice. What would you have done? How 
would you recommend I do it differently? It doesn't mean you have to do it this way the next time, but mm -hmm. it might be a good clue. And you can also ask for a trend, you know, or, or a pattern. It's like, okay, do you have, is this the first time that I have done this or has that happened yeah. multiple times? And if I have done this before, like, has it gotten better or worse um, or on a scale from one to five? Like, how bad was it really, you know? Because sometimes we might hear a negative feedback in a way where it seems, oh, God, this was a catastrophe, you know? And we make it up being something like that. And then if we would ask the person, so of uh, five star rating, how much is it? And they would say, yeah, four out of five, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Not a catastrophe then. Yes. You know, I mean, you can still learn and grow and you can better and you can try and get to five at some point, but you're not going to feel as bad about that particular conversation. Yeah. So much of what we take from feedback is about context and relation, right? So understand too, if that person is a very tightly wound or nervous person, if they said something like that's a catastrophe, that's also a good filter to say, well, I know this person and I know that they tend to respond to small hiccups in a way that catastrophizes them. And so that can reassure us as well. One of the things that you've talked about in your work that I find really interesting and practical is the idea of the job demands resources model. Mm -hmm. I think this is an overlooked element of our success. And just from a personal perspective, when the pandemic started, I came home to work from home for the long term, although I didn't know it was a long term at the time. And I was sitting on a cushion on my living room floor, looking at my laptop, sitting, you know, with a bench in front of me. And my thinking was, this is temporary and I'll make the best of it. Everybody's living through a crisis right now. How bad can it be? At least I'm not sitting in a bad chair. Well, I moved on to sit in a bad chair, probably just out of a desire for a change of scenery. And then I really hurt myself. I, I pinched a nerve in my back and I ended up having to go to the emergency room in the hospital. That was scary. But what it really showed me was I can't simply ignore the little details of my setup. And if you're knowledgeable about ergonomics and you're listening to this and you're rolling your eyes, that's okay because it was a major oversight on my part and I'm not advocating that anybody do what I did. But I think what I did wasn't that uncommon in the sense that I overlooked some really fundamental basic elements of working productively and successfully under the circumstances that I had, which were in the pandemic and working at home. So can you talk a little bit about the job demands resources model and thinking through the details, even the small details that some people might not consider relevant of how we can change our work environment for better work, better performance, better focus. So this is a model that has been researched for over two decades since when it was first proposed by scientists. And what it says very briefly is that in any job, in any occupation, the factors that you encounter in your work environment or in your workday you can categorize in either being job demands, so meaning elements or factors that need your sustained attention or effort. Might it be physical, uh, might it be cognitive, emotional, to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And 
those over time, they are not bad in and of itself. So it can be a bad physical environment. It can be, you know, either sitting in a too cold room. It can be squinting your eyes because the rows in your spreadsheet are so small. We're not even really aware of, but it takes our sustained effort to, yeah, just still do our work and achieve our goal despite all of that. But it can also be too high workload. It can be two tasks that are too complex. It can be unnecessary bureaucracy at work. All these sort of elements. And they're not negative per se, but if we encounter them for a very long time and we don't have proper time to recharge or recreate, then they can drain our energy so much that we're exhausted, we have impaired health, sleeping problems, these sort of things. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand side, you have job resources. So all those things that help you get the job done, the things that motivate you, that you know, make what you do engaging for you, that help you achieve your goals. These are things, for example, receiving feedback, you know, knowing where you stand. Yeah. Uh, this can be a resource. Having autonomy and flexibility in how you want to do your work. Having opportunity for growth and learning and many more. And those are motivating, engaging, lead to organizational commitment, all the good things that come with it. And they also have a buffering effect against the negative mm -hmm. impacts that the job demands have on us. So, and I have, I mean, if forever who's listening, if you're curious about that and, and all of that was too quick, <laughs> I have created a, a document uh, which helps you, I call it the no fluff, immediately applicable guide to reduce stress and burnout in your team. And I can give you the... I'll, I'll link yeah. to that. Yeah. So, and in there I have, it also contains a self-assessment, so which asks 10 questions about, for you to reflect on what job demands or stress factors, I, as I call them there, is my team facing and what motivating factors is my team facing or not. And then it gives you a ton of uh, ideas and clues and strategies on how you can progress with those areas that are not so well, but yeah, so it's really about becoming aware of what is actually going on. Because sometimes people think it's just the workload that is a problem mm -hmm. for burnout. But that's not true. There are so many other things that are annoying and frustrating. You know, the, just think about roles being unclear at work, you know, not knowing where the handover between teams is. And if you so what? I thought you were going to do it. No, it's your work to do it. <laughs> you know. That's what I call the hot potato. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there are endless amount of these things. And if we start paying attention to them, and again, there are in this document, it's free to download. There are a lot of ideas or starting points to think about. Then we can be more mindful in, say, okay, how can I decrease this job demand or how can I reduce this stress factor? I might not be able to get rid of it, but I might be able to have a clear agreement with my counterpart on who's doing what. And so in the future, mm -hmm. this is not stressing me out anymore. At the same time, what chair am I sitting on? Do I have fresh air in the room? Am I hunched over my desk or am I able to take a physical break uh, 
you know, actually walk around and stretch for a while throughout the day. So it starts by directing our attention at those things and then selecting one after another, starting to make tiny tweaks and re-engineering the way that we work to really, I mean, I'm all for sleeping well, eating healthy, exercising, meditate if that is what you like doing, uh, or do other things that recreate. But I strongly believe that if we go back week after week to the same job and face the same demands and face the same lack of resources, then all of that resilience building, it's just like squeezing a lemon, you know, even, even then at some point there's nothing left and I think it's completely unnecessary. Yeah. And, and I think also that speaks to the balance between the individual and the system and the way that we think about responsibility. And at least in North America, I do sense that there's a real emphasis on the individual's responsibility to take care of themselves and do all the things that set them up for success. But there is less attention paid to systemic problems in the workplace. And this isn't necessarily particularly dramatic, but I think one of the examples that you've mentioned in another podcast was the idea of working in a really loud environment, which most of us have experienced. And that might be fine for some people. For me, I find it incredibly difficult to focus if it's, it's really loud. But I can. But what I notice is I get so, so tired. And I will get to the point where I can actually almost fall asleep. So that's, that's a good example of how you can be drained of something that's happening around you. And it might seem completely normal. But once you tune into that fact about yourself, that insight about what matters to you, then you can either ask to be working in a quieter place or you can adapt your space. Okay. I want to talk about something that I'm passionate about, which is communication and all of its forms. I think I'd love to hear what you have to say, Nicole, about communication skills that are going to set people up for success in the workplace, whether it's with their customers, so internally, partners, collaborators, team members, leaders, direct reports. What are some of the most fundamental insights about communication that your clients need to hear? And to be clear, these might seem obvious, but I want to go over them because I think communication is often the most underappreciated values and is often one of the most misunderstood areas of our lives and we tend to assume that we are we tend to assume we're good communicators when we still have work to do yeah <laughs> and sometimes people mistake communication for talking at others <laughs> oh yeah and <laughs> that's a big one and it's just yeah that that idea that if you have talked for an hour and you dumped every piece of information that you have and every thought that you have at the other person, now you think you have communicated, well, you have said something, but, you know, what has changed since then? And has it changed for the better? So things might have changed. People might be more confused or more frustrated with you because of your communication. So. Yeah, we could probably talk another hour just about <laughs> just about this topic. But um, just thinking about, okay, what is, and again, thinking here in the workplace, and this can be an email, it can be in a meeting, it can be just in a conversation that you have with someone, it can be a newsletter that you send out. Sometimes, you know, when 
I'm responsible for communicating in a project. And sometimes some senior leaders would give me feedback, say, well, we're not communicating enough. When at the same time, I hear from the other people that they're getting a, you know, enough newsletters as it is. And so it's not about volume, yeah? but it's about, That's for sure. it's about being thoughtful. And that thoughtfulness starts with, okay, I want to go talk to someone or I want to go send that email. What's the point? You know, what is my goal mm-hmm. with this and who am I speaking to? So having that super brief check-in with yourself, what is my goal? What do I want out of this? Because that immediately tells you what you have to say and what you can happily leave out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, knowing who you're speaking to tells you how you should say it. Yes, this is so vital. I I think the audience is everything because you can communicate the same information to two audiences and have a very different response. Understanding what motivates your audience. When I say audience, I simply mean whether it's your conversation partner, whoever's listening, whether it's, you know, where to go for dinner or where research funding should be granted. It's so important. So go on a little bit more, Nicole, mm-hmm. with that idea about thinking about how you're going to communicate and then who who is it you're speaking to. Yeah. So now that you know what you want to get out of this conversation, and by the way, this goal doesn't always have to be the end goal. You know, sometimes we have an end right. goal, like you just said, get research funding. But if this is the first time that you propose this idea of, to your boss, you're mm-hmm. not going in and say, hey, give me 20 grand for this research. Here's my new brand new idea you've never heard of. But you might have a different goal for the first conversation, which is for your boss to actually listen. Sometimes that can be a good enough goal in and of itself. And then the next conversation, you go to the next step. Okay, I'm going to make sure that my boss is intrigued and asks follow-up questions. So sometimes you can, it's actually a good strategy, you know, to tiptoe your way there and not beat people with a baseball bat until they give in they actually become more resistant the more you want from them when you first uh, approach them with a topic. So anyways, knowing your goal, knowing your audience, and then communicate it in a way that makes whatever you're saying relevant to them. So really practice your empathy and perspective-taking skills, which doesn't mean you have to go over to their side and agree with everything that they're saying and thinking, but you need to know what matters to them. What are their objectives and goals that they have at work? What are their concerns that they're currently facing? What are they interested in and what do they not care about at all? So making whatever you're talking about or what you want from them relevant to that person is important and also not leave the interpretation up to people. It is a common mistake that we think just because we say the facts, people give it the same meaning as we do. Sometimes, if you're a subject matter expert, when you say a fact, then the implications of that fact, because you have thought through it so often, they are super clear for you. But for someone who listens to you, they say, okay, so what? You know, and so you kind of like <laughs> have to give that interpretation, what that means and what that means and what that leads to. And that's why you should care. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. don't, make, don't make people work so hard to understand you. <laughs> And then another way to communicate better is to learn to be clear and concise. 
So can you make your point in 10 words or less? And then expand on it with examples and with rationales and with studies and data and best practices and what have you. But to go into a meeting knowing what is the point that I actually want to make and being able to, and sometimes you have to rewrite that sentence a thousand times, it feels like, but practicing of getting your point down to 10 words or less and then having a clear structure for how you want to back that up or explain that can be a so useful exercise to do. Yeah. And then we could go on about, you know, think about what's the appropriate frequency or level of depth and detail. It's like making sure it's always a two-way communication and not just, you know, broadcasting mm -hmm. at others. Yeah. Building rapport is so fundamental. And I feel... Well, it is about emotions, right? It's about trust and feeling comfortable with the other person's style. And people have varying interest and levels of detail. So I love your idea about the 10-word summary because it should be compelling enough to intrigue anybody who wants to hear more and succinct enough for anybody who doesn't care about the details to understand your point and then you can move on. And that's the, the added benefit that either type of audience member or conversation partner can benefit from that approach. It's very practical. Absolutely. Ah, this has been such a great conversation. I, I feel I've put you through a lot of thinking and questions. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience and talk a little bit more about or encourage audience members to think about? Yeah, I guess we have touched on a lot. So for whoever is listening, make a plan of how you can take one insight from today and apply it, uh, play around with it. Doesn't mean everything that we shared here works for others, but, you know, if something resonated or intrigued someone, then start applying it because that is where the value comes from. I mean, Jana, you and I, we can talk here for endless days, but again, it's just <laughs> sure. broadcasting at people and it doesn't really change anything for them. It only changes when they start doing something with it. And so, um, yeah, instead of adding more information to all of that, I suggest everybody just take a moment and think of one thing that you want to start doing differently. Absolutely. And if you're interested in more of Nicole's work, her website and LinkedIn profiles will be linked in the show notes. So I encourage you to reach out to her. I understand you're fairly active on LinkedIn, so you'll be very likely to respond to any questions or, or interest from listeners. And to reiterate what Nicole said, action matters. It's lovely to listen to interesting conversations, but just consider what made you curious today. Tap into that. Try it out. Practice. Practice goes so far in helping us apply what we've heard. Um, and it might look different for you than it looks like for me. So with that said, Nicole, thank you so much for coming to the podcast today. It's been wonderful having you. Yeah, it was really, it was a really fun conversation. Thank you for having me, Jana. love access ideas we'd love for you to subscribe rate and review us on podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts 
Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.